the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to begin by acknowledging that the authors of the Revised Common Lectionary tend to put those passages of Scripture that are particularly difficult for us modern people to digest right in the middle of summer, when they knew precisely that fewer and fewer people will come to church. Indeed, these passages today are among the most perplexing and difficult in all of Holy Scripture, but they're also the most fun. Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 6, talks extensively about the power of sin and about how we have died in our baptism. In the Old Testament reading from Genesis, we hear of Abraham banishing Hagar and his own son Ishmael into the wilderness at the request of his jealous wife, Sarah. And in the gospel reading, we hear a continuity in the theme of family dysfunction as Jesus tells his disciples that he has come not to bring peace, but a sword, a sword that fragments the very coherence of the nuclear family as we know it, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, son against his father. What the authors of the lectionary did not have the foresight to see, however, is that every few years, this reading falls on Father's Day. So a happy late Father's Day to each of you. Any of you have any burning questions about the theology of Holy Scripture sitting behind any of these particularly difficult readings, I would love to hear them. Please feel free to send all of your questions directly to my email, sarah at Hill. Org. Of course, I'm kidding, but any and all of your clergy, myself included, would love to talk to you about Holy Scripture. It's one of the main reasons that we love what we do, so please come talk to us. To this point in the Epistle to the Romans, Paul has spilled a lot of ink to the church in Rome, talking about how the good news of the gospel is that our salvation is not achieved through the mighty acts of the human will, nor by any achievement or accomplishment from our own strength, but by God's free gift of grace for us. Even when we were God's enemies, as our reading last week said, God proved his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And even as our sin increased, Paul writes, grace abounded all the more. No matter how powerful sin might be, God's love and God's grace is always more powerful. And the good news is that this comes freely, seemingly with no strings attached. But this is where things in Romans get quite interesting. If grace abounds even when we sin, well, then what does that mean in terms of how we are to live our lives? Does God's unconditional grace mean that I can just go on sinning as much as I want? In fact, why not sin more so that God can be given even more opportunity to be gracious to me? Should we continue to sin, Paul writes, in order that grace may abound? It might seem to us like a bit of a silly question, but it is one that speaks to the very heart of the human situation. Because inside each and every one of us, there is something like the young college undergraduate, the college freshman, free for the first time from the bonds of parental authority, lost in a cat's away, let's play kind of Dionysian revel. The college freshman is most certain that mother and father will still love them regardless. So they choose a life of sex drugs, and rock and roll. I like committing crimes, and God likes forgiving them. The world is, as Auden once wrote, admirably arranged. Should we sin in order that grace may abound? Paul answers his own question with, by no means, Even to ask this question is to misunderstand the very nature of how God's grace works in our lives and even the nature of our freedom in the life of grace. But Paul does not say that we should just pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps or try harder. No, the way that Paul answers his own question is to say that we have died. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In the course of just 10 verses in Romans chapters 5 and 6, Paul uses that word death no less than 14 times. Death stands at the very center not only of Paul's letter to the Romans, but of the entire Christian faith. Every Sunday when we gather around the altar, we proclaim the Lord's death. What is this Christian preoccupation with death? The greatest fear of many of us is that we will die, and I hate to break it to you, all of us indeed will one day die. Without even thinking about it, we do everything we can in order to avoid death, and rightly so. And what's more, we live in a culture that increasingly goes out of its way to hide the reality of death from our view. We turn our glances the other way. We distract our attention from the reality that we will not make it out of life alive. And this fear of death, this fear of clinging on to the fleeting idea that we will escape death once and for all, 
ultimately makes each and every one of us miserable. But Jesus offers us yet another way. Because Jesus faced death in full obedience to his Father, because he has taken the sin of the whole world upon himself in love on the cross, death no longer has dominion over him nor over us. See, Christianity does not offer a workaround to our avoidance of death. It does not offer us a palatable solution, but it takes our face and it rubs it right in the midst of death. When we are baptized, Paul writes, when we are marked with the sign of the cross, the instrument of torture upon which Jesus died, we are baptized into his death. And much the same goes for sin, actually. If you read Paul closely and for long enough, you will notice that he speaks less frequently about sins in the plural, the kind of preoccupations that we have with avoiding sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and more about sin in the singular, a kind of place or domain that we are within, something that has power and dominion over us, that eats away at each of us individually and collectively, something that traps us. This is important because Paul knows that this means that there is nothing that can simply mend the problem of sin within us. No amount of self-help or discipline, no amount of behavior management that can rehabilitate or cure that part of us that is touched by sin. For Paul, that part of us has to die. Christianity is not a system of behavior management or discipline. It is the path of the death of our ego on the cross of Jesus Christ and its sharing in his resurrection. And it's only when our ego dies, only when God's mercy kills the sin in us and gives us his righteousness in the resurrection, that we can no longer live enslaved to sin, but in freshness and newness of life in God through Christ Jesus. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. God's grace for us is not cheap. God's grace for us digs our sin up by its very roots. It takes away our breath. It ignores us as we are and treats us as that what we are not, as new people. And this happens, friend, friends, in our baptism. In our baptism, we are wrapped in the very death of Jesus Christ. And that part of us that is preoccupied with ourselves alone Every instance of greed and anger and sin is put to death on the cross of Jesus Christ. When we were washed in the waters of baptism, the mercy of God destroyed the admirably arranged world in each and every one of us, once and for all. 
In baptism, Luther once wrote, grace has clutched us by the throat. But also, in baptism, we have the opportunity to walk in newness of life. In baptism, we belong no longer to sin, but we belong as beloved children of God. In baptism, God has looked upon us in pleasure and given us his word of acceptance and love and allowed us to walk in newness of life. And because we are dead to sin, the Christian is at once utterly free and utterly dutiful, subject to none, yet servant of all. This is not gentle news for us. It is not gentle news because the death of sin in us calls into question every ordinary way that we normally live in the world. And it's painful. It's not gentle news. But if you felt stuck lately, if you've exhausted all attempts, if you've fallen short of some prescribed expectation, you just can't produce enough. You just can't be enough. You will know in your bones that this is very good news indeed. This is good news because that college freshman inside each and every one of us isn't really acting out of freedom at all, but of a pervading sense of insufficiency and of rebellion. It is good news because God's voice in Jesus Christ is for us not a voice of displeasure at our shortcomings, but of generous and abounding love for us. It is good news because this voice, and only this voice, can give us real freedom. Freedom that is to live in the likeness of the resurrected Jesus. It is good news because God has already accomplished this for us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you. Oh.